And I'm convinced that he calls each of us to do something to make a difference so that the people who live in this tragic kingdom kind of world can also find hope in their lives as well because we have the power to be the answer to their prayers. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today's guest is the president of World Vision, Rich Stearns, and I'll introduce you to him in just a moment. If you are new to First Person, I invite you to learn more online at firstpersoninterview.com. Our website is growing each week, and you'll find helpful information there, not only about today's guest and topic, but about past interviews you may have missed. So check out the audio archive at firstpersoninterview.com. And if you'd like to load up your MP3 player with programs to play anytime you're available to listen in the gym or in the car, you can download First Person as a podcast from iTunes. And anytime you'd like to leave a comment or suggestion, you'll find us at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Today's guest, Rich Stearns, is the president of World Vision USA, but he's also an excellent author. In 2010, he wrote an award-winning book, The Whole in Our Gospel. His new book, Unfinished, is all about believers carrying out the great commission given to us by Jesus and thereby finding our ultimate purpose and meaning in life. So I sat down recently with Rich to learn his personal story of faith. Well, you know, Wayne, uh, as a young man uh, in college and graduate school, um, I thought I had all the answers. I thought I was uh, – I fashioned myself as a bit of an intellectual and I, I actually thought that believing in God was like an old superstition. It was for people who needed a crutch and, and people who believed in the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus, you know, that those are the things you leave behind in childhood. And and as you know from reading The Whole in Our Gospel, uh, this young woman I met uh, and began dating in college uh, had a profound influence on me because she was a Christian. And uh, and uh, it was kind of novel because I, I knew about Christians that went to church on Sunday, but I didn't really know many that were, were just totally committed to their faith and that their faith influenced their worldview in every dimension. And that was her, a young woman who's now my, my wife, Renee. But um, – for me, as uh, I was a science major, uh, neurobiology was my degree at Cornell University, and for me, it was a it was a question of truth. It is either true or it is false. Any religious uh, claim uh, or religious system, it's either true uh, or it's false. And if it's true, it's a big deal. And if it's not true, why would I go to church on Sunday if it's just a fairy tale and, and it's not true? So. Because of this relationship I had with Renee, um, I really set out to find out for myself whether this was true or false, this, uh, this religion called Christianity and the claims of Christ. And I began uh, reading kind of obsessively. I was in graduate school getting an MBA and I started reading book after book after book about uh, religion, comparative religion, archaeology in the scriptures, uh, science in scripture, uh, different books on apologetics. I read C.S. Lewis. I read John Stott and, and a number of other authors that you'd be familiar with. And at the end of that journey, I, I became more and more convinced that the claims of Christ were actually true, that he was an historical person who, who lived and died and, and did the things he claimed to do and was who he claimed to be, that he literally rose from the dead. And I, I came to believe that that was true. And I remember the moment when I said, if I had to bet my life 
on whether the Christian story is true or false, what would I bet? And I realized that I did have to bet my life because I was either going to bet that it didn't happen and it wasn't true or I had to bet that it was true. And there was no halfway uh, because what I understood or what I believed is that if Christ was the Son of God, then he had to be everything in my life. That I, if I can use an analogy of playing a game of poker where you put chips into the center when you bet, um, in some of those old Western poker games, they'd push all their chips into the center and they'd put the, <laughs> and then they'd put the deed to the farm in there and they'd say, I bet yep. it all. I have so much confidence. They're all I'm in. all in. Yeah. And, so that day I, I closed – I think I'd read 50-some books and I closed the last book and I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I believe it's true and I want to bet the farm. I want to put all my chips in because I don't want to live my life based on a lie and uh, if Jesus is the truth, then everything else is a lie. Mm-hmm. Once you became a Christian and life happened for you, you entered the corporate world and you talk a lot in both books about the difference between – uh, salvation and the lordship of Christ. Um, when did he become Lord of your life, Rich? Well, I think it's a process for every believer. Um, hopefully, as we grow older and we grow wiser and closer to God uh, over the years, uh, he becomes more the Lord of our lives and he informs every area of our lives. Um, so for me, I mean, I started off with great zeal. Um, and uh, in fact, there's a there's a funny story because uh, I graduated from business school with an MBA and uh, my wife and I got in- engaged. Renee and I got engaged my second year and uh, she wanted to register for her china and crystal and silver at the department store as most married couples did at that time. And uh, you know, I didn't know much about this as a male and uh, – but when I understood what she was saying, I got very indignant and uh, and I said, as long as there are children starving in the world, we are not going to buy – frivolous, expensive China crystal and silver. And so we did not register. We were probably the only married couple in that decade that didn't register uh, when they got married. And we got the dumbest wedding presents you can imagine because nobody <laughs> knew what to get us. And, um, and of course, the irony of that is that 20 years later, I was named CEO of the largest China crystal and silver company in America. You had to eat your words off those plates, didn't I had you? To, you? I literally had to eat my words off those plates with silverware made in the factories that I ran. And um, uh, so it was kind of – you know, I like to say God has a sense of humor and he uses things in our lives to communicate to us. And so, you know, Renee and I, we set out as a young married couple to try to live our lives for Christ. We were very involved at our church. We had five kids. Um, we took them to church every Sunday. We volunteered at the church, taught Sunday school. So we were kind of uh, poster children for, you know, the Christian life. But, um, you know, there came a time, as you know, when I was confronted with the decision of whether uh, – to put my walk behind my talk, uh, and uh, it was a really a moment of crisis for us. You were pretty comfortable. I was comfortable, and you know my story is a little bit of the American dream. I grew up, uh, you know, fairly poor in America for, uh, by American standards. Broken home, alcoholic father, bank foreclosed on our home and evicted us. Uh, a lot of financial insecurity. Um, broken family. And uh, so for me to go through two Ivy League schools and to rise to CEO of several American corporations was unbelievable. It was literally the American dream come true. So 
I found myself in my mid-40s as the CEO of this great company, Lennox China. Five kids lived in a big mansion with 10 bedrooms on five acres in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And I had life by the tail. I mean, uh, I just felt God had blessed us. And of course, we were trying, we tried to be generous with our money and support the church and the work of the kingdom. And, uh, uh, but we were very comfortable. So you made the decision to go to World Vision when that, uh, at first the headhunter approached you and you, you said no, didn't you? Yes, I, I got a call from an executive recruiter or lovingly called a headhunter and, um, and uh, he tried to persuade me that I should throw my hat in the ring for the job of head of World Vision, a charity, by the way, which uh, my wife and I had supported for many years financially oh. and a great organization, we thought. But I did not want to let go of that American dream and I, you know, I told him I'm not qualified, um, I'm not interested and I'm not available. But other than that, um, you know, I'm a perfect candidate and he just wouldn't let it go. I, I was really trying to get off the phone because I knew it was a dangerous conversation and, um, and I had a lot to lose, uh, I felt. And then he said, Rich, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? And at that moment, uh, that, uh, that image of, a. uh, an arrogant young man saying, as long as there are children starving in the world, I'm not going to uh, have China crystal and silver. That that conversation came back to me, to mind, 20 years later, more than 20 years later. And I heard the voice of God saying, Rich, uh, do you remember that young man? Do you remember how passionate he was to serve his Lord and to care for children around the world? If you remember that man uh, – and you are still that man. I have a job that I'd like you to do. And uh, it was really a profound moment when I finally agreed with a recruiter that I would meet him for dinner and we could at least explore this, although I was still very skeptical. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, I left Lennox a few um, months later and joined World Vision. We'll get into this more when we talk about the message of unfinished, but going to World Vision, how do you look at that now? I mean, it's an organization that has worldwide impact, and you're at the helm, and it's got to be very rewarding. Well, you know, at the time, I looked at that decision in terms of all the things I would have to give up. I would have to give up my CEO title and my big salary. I would have to give up my 10-bedroom mansion on five acres. I would have to give up my company car, which was a Jaguar sports car. Um, and so I looked at the the decision in terms of what I was going to give up rather than what God had in store for me. And, uh, of course, years later, I look at that decision and, and now I know the incredible blessing that God had in store for me. But he first said, as he does to all of us, you have to let go of what you're clutching so desperately in your hands because if you don't let go of that, I can't put something better in your hands. And I believe that we as followers of Christ have to hold everything loosely in our lives. We have to just hold it with open hands and, and offer it to the Lord and say, Lord, if you want to take what's in my hand, take it and, and replace it with something that is, is far better. And so the experience at World Vision has been life-changing for me. Um, because I've discovered uh, a deeper relationship in my own faith with God. I've discovered gifts and talents I never knew I had. Uh, and it's been a, a really exciting adventure of walking with God in, and trusting God in a deeper way and, and re, him, him revealing to me uh, the incredible riches he had in store for me and my family. 
And there's more to come as we continue today's conversation with Rich Stearns of World Vision here on First Person. Next time, a conversation with musician Buddy Green. You get his design on your life. I mean, you give you give God your dreams, you know, and then he gives you back the thing that's ordered by him. And it's it, it may resemble your dreams a little bit, but it's so much different and so much better. What is it about this man that makes his music so meaningful and fun? Buddy Green, from the heart, next time when you join us for First Person. Rich, I know you probably don't feel qualified to write a book like this, but I think you're uniquely in a position to write a book. I serve on a couple of ministry boards, and the issues that we're wrestling with are the very issues that you touch on in this book. Uh, how, how do you uh, paint the big picture of what this book is about? Well, um, you know, this book, uh, you're right, I feel kind of inadequate writing it. I'm not a theologian. I don't have a seminary degree, and so I tread lightly, and my prayer every morning as I wrote was, Lord, don't let me uh, say anything that is a violation of your truth and your word, and and I prayed that the Spirit would guide me in saying what I had to say. But um, essentially, this book is about the meaning of life and uh, – and what does life mean for all of us, not just uh, those of us who are Christians, but for every human that's ever been born? What is the meaning and purpose of our life? Are we just a bunch of random molecules in an unimaginably large universe swirling around with no purpose? Or are we uniquely created by a creator in his image for a purpose? And I believe, as I think every Christian believes, that God created us uniquely for a purpose, and this book is about discovering that purpose uh, for which God created us and finding a deeper level of meaning in our lives, much as I found a deeper level of meaning in my own life and my own faith uh, through my decision to uh, follow Jesus to World Vision and serve in this way. And I'm not saying everybody has to quit their job and go work for a ministry to have this experience. But uh, the, the word unfinished uh, has a double meaning. Uh, first of all, the job that Christ gave the church to do, sometimes called the Great Commission or establishing his kingdom of God around the world, remains unfinished. Twenty centuries later, we have not finished the job he gave us to do. But it's also it also means that you and I are incomplete uh, until we find that thing that God has called us to. And when we embrace that kingdom mission that he's given all of us as followers – uh, and when we find our place to serve in that kingdom mission, then we become completed people. Hmm. Well, I can't say this about every interview that I do, not all of them, but in this case, I read every word of this book because it's my voice that's on the audiobook edition of your book. And I, I just want to say I took this book very personally and appreciate it very much. It was a very challenging book. I want you to talk about um, the magic kingdom, the tragic kingdom, and the kingdom of God for a moment. I, I found that very compelling. A few years ago, my wife and I went to Haiti about a year after the earthquake, and we were in one of these refugee or IDP camps in Haiti, and it was a tent city, and, and they were kind of UN tents as far as the eye could see, and all of these homeless people who had survived the earthquake, many of them with serious injuries, uh, were now living in tents because their homes had collapsed. And we went to a remarkable church service that Sunday in the middle of this IDP camp, and these Haitian people who had lost everything uh, came into this little uh, humble church made out of tarpaulins and scrap lumber 
and uh, and they worshiped God and they gave thanks to God and they prayed to God and they sang passionately about God. The worship service was over two hours long. There were at least two 30-minute sermons by different pastors who preached. But there was one woman in this church named Demosi who had lost both an arm and a leg in the earthquake. She had been trapped under the rubble and they had to amputate two of her limbs. And yet she was leading the choir and she was leading the corporate prayer and she stood up there with incredible dignity, smiling and worshiping God and clapping with one hand because she only had one hand, clapping it to her shoulder. And we got to meet Demosi afterwards, uh, went to her tent and we heard her story and she was such an inspiration and I won't go into the whole story because it's in the book but the very next week, uh, we were back in Seattle, Washington at our home church and it was the Advent season and the church was beautifully decorated, two 25-foot Christmas trees, poinsettias everywhere. The children's choir sang. The the huge pipe organ belted out the great Christmas songs. And I'm sure that everyone left church that day and many of them probably got in their cars and drove to the malls to finish their Christmas shopping. The men probably watched the football game that afternoon on their big screen TVs. And that's when it struck me, the incredible disparity, uh, just two Sundays right in a row – one in a refugee camp in Haiti and one in an affluent church in Seattle. And I thought, what must God think when he looks down and sees those two churches, both committed to Christ and followers of Christ, one desperately poor, uh, one quite affluent and comfortable, and the disparity between the two. And I had this idea that, uh, you know, the people in Demosi's world live in what I call the tragic kingdom where children die before their fifth birthday. They don't have clean water to drink. They have all kinds of problems that come with poverty. And the people that go to my church, I call them magic kingdom Christians, uh, playing off Disney World as the magic kingdom where we live in an insulated world, uh, a bubble. And the, the hardships we face are sometimes deciding where to invest our money or how much of our money to leave our children or which job we will take, maybe in a better economy than currently. But we have so many choices, so many options. Uh, most of us live in nice homes or apartments um, and we have so many things that we take for granted. And I thought God must have a broken heart when he sees these two manifestations of his church. And I'm convinced that he calls each of us to do something about this disparity, to uh, to do something to make a difference so that the people who live in this tragic kingdom kind of world uh, can also find hope and comfort and encouragement in, in their lives as well because we have the power to be the answer to their prayers. I'm sure you work with a lot of uh, people of, of different ages, but in, in case of young people, are they struggling to find a sense of purpose in life? Oh, I think very much so. Um, my own daughter is graduating from college next month and uh, – you know, the big topic of conversation among all of her friends is what are we going to do and where are we going and what career are we going to pursue? And I think young people especially are looking to find that thing which God has created them to do, Christian young people. And uh, and they don't know uh, in many cases what that is. And I meet in the younger generation so many young people that have a much broader view of the world than my generation did. Many of them have made mission trips to Africa or Latin America or Asia. Uh, they're much more acquainted with global culture and cultural differences and, and they live in a much smaller world uh, for them than it was for us when we were coming of age. And uh, they all want to make a difference and they all want to do something significant. And you see it in uh, 
you know, all kinds of movements that are taking place on the internet as these young people engage in their favorite causes, whether it be anti-trafficking or clean water or the issues of girls and women in the world. Um, they want to be part of something that's making a difference and um, so many of them want to work for World Vision or an organization like ours because they see that as one way that they can have that dream come true. Well, Rich, in conclusion, this is such a great book for anyone at any age, uh, at any career point in your life because we all, whether we're starting out or reevaluating what we're doing in life or asking that question, someone is listening right now who is struggling with the question, what is my purpose in life? Uh, just in summary, what would you say to that person? Well, first of all, I'd get back to uh, a comment I made earlier. I believe that Christ has invited all of us uh, to participate in the work of restoring and redeeming and reclaiming uh, our world for him. And he has sent us into all the world with that job to do. And there's, there's a thousand ways, more than a thousand ways to do it. There's an elderly shut-in maybe in your neighborhood who needs a friend. Um, there's someone that maybe needs someone to drive them to their doctor's appointments uh, now and then. Uh, there's volunteers needed at the homeless shelter. Um, there, there's a million ways to serve uh, as a school teacher influencing the lives of young people, as a missionary in a place where they haven't heard the gospel, as a doctor who's providing services to people that maybe can't afford uh, the services. There's so many ways to serve. But I want to take you back to the comment I made that we have been invited. Um, but the thing about invitations is they require an RSVP. In fact, one of the chapters in Unfinished is called RSVP. We can choose to respond or we can choose to just pursue our own course, our own life, our own plans for our lives without RSVPing to the invitation of the king to serve. And finding our deepest purpose in life begins with surrender. It begins by laying our lives down in front of the Lord and saying, it's all yours uh, to do it as you please, Lord. My money, my vocation, my family, uh, maybe my family business, my title, the community I live in, the gifts and talents that I have, the things I'm passionate about, I lay them all down at your feet and they're yours to do it as you please. And Jesus may not take all of those things. You you may offer him your family business, offer him your career. He may not choose to take that away from you or he may. In, in my case, he took my career and gave me something so much better. But he does want to know that you've signed all the titles over to him. And making that commitment is really the first step toward finding that thing that God has called you to. Until you bet the farm, until you push all your chips into the center and say, I bet it all, Jesus has a hard time working with people who won't commit. Rich Stearns, the president of World Vision, our guest today here on First Person. In case you missed it, his latest book is titled Unfinished, Believing is Only the Beginning. It's published by Thomas Nelson, and it was my honor to narrate Rich's book for Oasis Audio. Of course, if you would like additional information, you'll find it at firstpersoninterview.com. You'll find today's conversation archived there, along with all previous interviews, which you can listen to and maybe even share the link with others whom you think would benefit from listening. For instance, if you missed last week's conversation about Native American culture, it's online. And our upcoming schedule is also posted at firstpersoninterview.com. Next week, our guest will be Buddy Green. I've always enjoyed Buddy's music, but it's his personal story we'll hear next time. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to First Person.